Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number 95, Paul Rothstein, Confronting Memory Loss. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence and proof. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. Today on the show, we are joined by Paul Rothstein. Paul is a professor of law at Georgetown, and he's simply a giant in the evidence community. Over his career, he's authored more than 100 law review articles, a fact that I just find simply amazing. And I know personally that his work on character evidence is simply immense. Today, though, our focus is turning not towards character evidence, but instead to confrontation. Paul's most recent paper, co-authored with Ron Coleman, is entitled Confronting Memory Loss. Forthcoming in the Georgia Law Review, Paul and Ron consider current holes in confrontation jurisprudence, specifically in the context of how the confrontation clause applies when, say, a witness forgets an experience or perhaps even suffers from a more systematic form of memory loss. The article is thorough and insightful, and I'm sure you'll enjoy my conversation with Paul today. Paul, welcome to the show. Well, I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you. So your paper examines how the Confrontation Clause both does and should apply when a witness experiences memory loss. And it's a really fascinating article, really fascinating idea. I encourage our listeners to go read the article because I very much enjoyed reading it myself. I want to build up to your contributions first by setting what some might consider to be a basic but also an important foundation. So because we're going to be talking a lot about confrontation today, first, if you would, just quickly remind us of the contours of current confrontation jurisprudence under Crawford and its progeny. Sure. In 2004, as you know, uh, Crawford came down. And in Crawford, the Supreme Court revolutionized how the Confrontation Clause applies to hearsay statements that the prosecution wants to offer against a criminal defendant through a recognized hearsay exception or exemption. In Crawford, instead of okaying the old reliability approach to the Confrontation Clause that basically allowed anything the traditional hearsay rule allowed, Crawford changed that and rendered inadmissible any out-of-court statement that had a testimonial purpose if there was no opportunity to cross-examine the maker. Now, a testimonial purpose, roughly speaking, means a statement made or gathered with prosecution in mind. So now, after Crawford, if such an out-of-court statement cannot be cross-examined, it is inadmissible under the Confrontation Clause, whatever the hearsay rule says. Perfect. So with that understanding in our back pocket, if you will, let's turn to witnesses who have experienced some form of, of memory loss. So, Paul, why do they pose a particular problem in the context of confrontation? An inadmissible testimonial out-of-court statement becomes admissible under Crawford um, if the maker takes the stand at trial and is subject to cross-exam. Now, the question we deal with in the paper is, what constitutes sufficient opportunity at trial to cross-examine this guy? 
suppose the witness has completely forgotten at the time of trial when he's being cross-examined, he's completely forgotten both his former out-of-court statement and the incriminating event he, he reported in it that they're attempting to use against the defendant. Let's say to every question he will answer, I don't remember. The question is, is that a sufficient opportunity to cross-examine under the Confrontation Clause? Or is, is he like a dead body or a cardboard cutout on the witness stand? And you note here, because I want to follow up on that point, that there's some precedent that proves instructive for this issue. So in particular, in your paper, you examine this key case, United States v. Owens. So if you would, Paul, walk us through that case. And what does it have to say about the confrontation right in this context? Well, in Owens, decided by the Supreme Court prior to Crawford, but probably it's still viable. Anyway, in Owens, the witness gave a former statement now offered in evidence, but now he had very impaired memory of the event because of brain injury. The Supreme Court said the former statement was admissible because there was now a sufficient opportunity to cross-examine the witness despite his impaired memory. So where does precedent leave us then, not only with Owens, but perhaps all of the cases that are relevant having been issued by courts? Do we have any clarity regarding confrontation or memory loss, or is there still clarity that's necessary? There's still a lot that's necessary. The court in Owens used very broad, sweeping language to okay the evidence despite the memory loss. The court seemed to say that all that is required for an adequate cross-examination and for adequate confrontation is that the witness be physically present on the stand, responding in any fashion to questions, regardless of his total inability to remember anything. So in fact, this sounds like uh, just uh, any warm body or maybe cold body on the witness stand would do, do the trick. But in fact, uh, despite this broad language, in Owens, there was some partial memory. The witness remembered making the statement and a tiny bit about the event reported in the statement. So the question we ask in our paper is, is there ever any point at which the court would say, this person has insufficient memory and therefore cannot be meaningfully cross-examined. The court in Owens seemed to say, no, that point never comes. But in fact, in that case, there was some basis, some memory. And so we're looking forward to see what would happen if there's no memory at all. And in doing that in our paper, we distinguish eight factors which might bear on that question. Although we also recognize that the court might stick to its very broad implications in Owens that there is never such a point at which the witness, no matter how memory dead, this witness cannot be sufficiently cross-examined. They may feel that point is never reached. There's always sufficient opportunity to cross-examine as long as the witness is on the stand, whatever he says about his memory, whether he remembers anything or not. So you just mentioned that in your paper, you note that there are at least eight important issues related to confronting memory loss. And I kind of want to walk through each of those because they're quite interesting and I really enjoyed reading about them. So the first of these eight issues deals with a potential distinction between partial and complete memory loss. So tell us about that in the context of confrontation. Well, the witness may forget the event, 
or may forget her statement about the event, or both. So where it is both, we call it complete memory loss, where she can't remember either the statement or the event she was reporting in this former statement. The other situations are partial memory loss, that is, where she remembers either the event or the statement she made about it, either one. In Owens, the court felt the significant factor was whether or not cross-examination could provide a sufficient basis for the fact finder to assess credibility. So we think the court will hold eventually that if the witness remembers either the event or the statement, but not both, in other words, she suffers only what we call partial memory loss, that there is still enough memory left to afford a satisfactory basis to assess credibility. That's what we think the court will ultimately hold, that if she remembers either of these things, that's a satisfactory basis to assess credibility and the opportunity to cross-examine will be fine. So we can't be sure about that, but what we are saying that partial memory loss will be held to afford a meaningful opportunity to cross-examine and only complete memory loss will not. While it might make sense to treat the two kinds of partial memory loss differently, that is to treat forgetfulness of the event differently than forgetfulness of the statement, we think the court won't do that, but will say that either of those two memories will be sufficient. We conclude this based on Owens and the disinclination of the court to draw fine lines. So bottom line, what I'm saying is we predict the court will require memory of either one the event or the statement, for admissibility. If neither is remembered, the witness has complete memory loss and the statement is inadmissible. But we recognize there's another possibility, and that is that the court will carry out the full implications of the broad language in Owens, and that even a witness with complete memory loss of both the event and the statement will afford a satisfactory opportunity to cross-examine because there is still some basis to judge credibility there, uh, the forgetfulness itself. There's an implication in Owens that merely showing the witness forgets, even if he forgets everything, that cross-examining to show the witness forgets everything, that's a sufficient basis for the fact finder to make a credibility judgment. That's one of the implications of Owen. So they may hold that, that no matter how forgetful, the witness is still meaningfully cross-examinable. I think that's a bad position, but there you have it. So you next discuss, quote, simply forgotten memory loss and demonstrable cause memory loss, kind of two different categories there. So what's the distinction between simply forgotten memory loss and demonstrable cause forgetfulness? Well, if the witness says, I'm simply forgetting it's been a long time, and this is sort of a normal phenomenon for human beings to forget. That's one thing. But memory loss caused by a demonstrable cause means that the witness was hit on the head or suffered an accident or has dementia or Alzheimer's, something like that. So there's natural causes of memory loss, and then there's somewhat, let's say, traumatic causes of memory loss. And while we believe in the paper that a distinction between the two could be made in that showing mere forgetfulness may sometimes reflect on credibility of the original statement more than some traumatic memory loss, 
So we think you could distinguish between those two things, but we don't think the court is going to impose on courts the very difficult and murky task of distinguishing the two. So the third issue is related to that second issue. You think about demonstrable cause memory loss before and after a previous statement is made. So how should that timing affect the confrontation analysis? Well, the distinction that we're talking about there is there could be a demonstrable cause, traumatic cause, of the present memory loss, but the demonstrable cause was initiated before the statement was made. And that, but the guy made the out-of-court statement, but he, at that time he still remembered the event, but there had been traumatic injury before the statement that hadn't wiped out the memory yet, but then after the statement, it wipes out the memory. So we could have then, what I'm saying here is a demonstrable cause, a traumatic injury initiated before the out-of-court statement is made and taking effect afterward, or this injury could occur after the out-of-court statement was made and then rears its ugly head at the trial. It causes the memory loss at the trial. So again, while this distinction could be an important credibility factor, we don't think the court's confrontation rule will make this distinction. Again, it's one that I think the court will feel is too complicated to require lower courts to make. Another issue in this space is whether it should matter whether a witness's memory loss is actually caused by acts of the accused. So what do you think about that issue? In Owens, the memory loss was allegedly caused by the defendant's criminal act itself that was the subject of the prosecution, an assault and battery by defendant on the witness. We think it might be sensible that if this is the case, there should be forfeiture of defendant's confrontation rights because he caused the memory loss. He shouldn't be able to say, oh, I can't confront this guy because he has memory loss, so you can't use his out-of-court statement against me, his prior statement against me. We think it would be sensible to say, well, you caused the memory loss. You now can't complain of it. You've lost your confrontation rights. But There's a big legal impediment to this. This would require overruling of Giles, of the Supreme Court Giles case, which says there's forfeiture of confrontation rights only if the witness, only if the defendant makes the witness unavailable on purpose in order to prevent the witness's testimony at trial. So in this case, like in Owens, the defendant injured the witness but not to prevent the witness's testimony, but just because it was a prison riot and there was an assault and battery. So if you wanted to have a forfeiture of confrontation rights here because the defendant inflicted the memory loss, you would have some trouble with Giles because in most of these cases, the infliction of the injury was not with the intention to prevent the witness's testimony. So we're now on to, I think, our fifth issue of eight. How should courts treat suspect as opposed to genuine memory lost in the context of confrontation rights? Well, we think this will become a vexatious issue for courts because there could be a lot of false claims of memory loss, and the witness would thereby avoid answering cross-examination questions. But we don't think that the court will say 
this should be handled by the confrontation clause. We think the court will say it should be handled as a matter of cross-examination. The cross-examination seems particularly designed for this kind of thing, and so I don't think the court will say anything about whether the confrontation clause permits that or not. I think it will be clearly permitted, and it will be for cross-examination to show that this guy is lying if he's lying. What about this issue? Should the confrontation clause apply differently in assertion of privileges cases and or I guess as compared to complete memory loss cases? Well, in the case of Douglas versus Alabama in the Supreme Court years ago, a witness invoked privilege, the self-incrimination privilege, to prevent answering questions on cross-examination. The Supreme Court held that to admit the witness's testimony would violate defendant's confrontation rights. So there's a strong argument that uh, it should be the same if the witness had instead refused to answer on grounds of loss of memory, you know, maybe genuinely. That seems very similar to the witness not answering based on a privilege claim. But one difference between the two situations might be that with the privilege claim situation, the witness cannot be repeatedly asked on cross-examination questions just one after another and force the witness to keep asserting the privilege before the fact finder. So you can't do that in the case of the privilege assertion, whereas a witness can be repeatedly forced to answer, I do not remember, as to each detail of his story. And this could be held by the court to afford a better basis for assessing credibility than in the case of privilege. So that while in the privilege case, the testimony cannot stand because it can't be cross-examined. In the case of memory loss, the court would probably, we think, hold that the testimony, the, the statement can be received and it can be shown by question after question after question that he says he doesn't remember and that that is a basis for the jury or the fact finder to judge credibility. And so the testimony can come in and it can meaningfully be confronted and cross-examined and there would be no violation of the confrontation clause. So you next explore the issue of whether the court would or even should treat child statements differently. So what are your thoughts here? Well, we we think there is a strong policy argument that child statements should not be easily barred. But we think the answer is to give the dictum in Ohio versus Clark some scope rather than affect it here and change the rules for children here in this memory loss area. The dictum in Ohio versus Clark is that child statements are rarely testimonial because they can't have that testimonial purpose or usually don't. And so what that would mean is that the child statement is very rarely affected by the confrontation clause. It's not testimonial, and so it wouldn't be barred. It would come in. And we think that's the way to handle it. We think you should not have a special confrontation clause rule on children in this memory loss area. So the final distinction that you explore here is whether the law would treat an expert witness with complete memory loss differently than a similarly situated lay witness. So tell us about that issue. Well, there is a Supreme Court case that bears a little bit on that question, Fensterer where an expert witness 
testified to an identification, forensic identification of material, but he couldn't remember how he reached that conclusion, but he was still confident in his identification and tying it to the defendant. He said there were three ways that you could uh, get to that conclusion, and he couldn't remember what method he used. And they said, well, that's okay. The memory loss doesn't really prevent effective cross-examination. He can still be pretty effectively cross-examined on a lot of stuff. So that's kind of in the area, but it doesn't completely answer what we're looking at. Suppose the expert doesn't really remember anything but gave his prior analysis, and it's the prior analysis to be offered in evidence. There, we recognize there's a good argument that forgetfulness in experts pretty nearly always affords a better basis for judging credibility than in the case of ordinary witnesses. That if an expert comes and takes the stand and he says he doesn't remember anything, that really does tend to impugn his earlier report that reaches a conclusion. So we think that probably the court will even though you can make this argument, the court will not make a distinction between experts and lay witnesses and will treat them the same, even though there's a pretty good argument that memory loss impugns experts more than lay witnesses. We just don't think that'll carry the day because in Melendez-Diaz in the Supreme Court, the uh, justices pretty firmly rejected making a distinction for confrontation purposes between experts and lay witnesses. Justice Kennedy wanted to have a distinction. He said, experts are a different kind of witness. They are not affected by the confrontation clause. The confrontation clause only affects sort of ordinary witnesses. But the court rejected that argument and said, the confrontation clause applies alike to experts and lay witnesses. And so we don't think the court is going to make any distinction between experts and lay witnesses in this memory loss area. Now, there has been a change in personnel since Melendez-Diaz on the court. Scalia and Kennedy have uh, been changed to Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. But upon looking at this closely and some of the history of these two justices who were judges before, we don't think that the fact that they've ascended to the Supreme Court and replaced Scalia and Kennedy, we don't think that will make any difference and that a refusal to distinguish between experts and lay witnesses for confrontation clause purposes will continue to be the case. Paul, these are eight truly fascinating issues, and I have one more question for you before you go. So what's next for the literature here? What type of additional paper would give us some more insight on this, this issue of confronting memory loss? Well, I think it might be useful to have some empirical research on what juries conclude from cross-examinations that show certain kinds of memory loss. Our paper is basically examining whether there is any effective basis for a jury to judge the credibility of a witness who has these various kinds of memory loss. And we are speculating, and it would be good to have some empirical research, some studies where some mock witnesses are put on before some mock juries and cross-examinations are made and the, some of the witnesses have, for various reasons, experienced memory loss, either partial or complete, and uh, the cross-examination shows this and then 
questioned the mock jury as to how they feel about that and whether they feel this affected the credibility of prior statement that is attempted to be offered of the witness, whether it affects the credibility of that and how it does that. Paul, this has been a truly fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, I appreciate being asked. Thank you very much. In their article, Paul and Ron offer what I think is a model example of effective evidence scholarship. They leave no stone unturned when recounting the descriptive landscape of modern confrontation jurisprudence. More than that, though, Paul and Ron offer a normative perspective on no less than eight different variants of memory impairment, explaining how each presents a unique challenge in the context of confrontation. The paper, to my mind, is fascinating. And I think all of us evidence scholars would do well to aspire to Paul's thorough, dedicated, and detailed approach to his work. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, the University of Arkansas School of Law, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The producer is Ed Chang, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host today, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. And I do hope that you will join us next time when we take on another work in the world of evidence and proof.